Welcome to HIV Unmuted, the IAS International AIDS Society's podcast. I'm your host, Femi OK. Our last episode focused on the doctor with the magic touch. Dr. David Ho, Magic Johnson's personal physician, has helped save millions of lives due to his pioneering HIV treatment breakthroughs in the 1990s. Thanks in large part to his work with the right medication, people living with HIV can lead four healthy lives and it is nearly impossible to transmit HIV to another person. But despite huge scientific progress, people living with HIV in many places are criminalized because of their HIV status. HIV criminalization laws exist in 92 countries worldwide. In the US alone, more than 30 states still enforce these laws. HIV criminalization is a growing global phenomenon and it's increasingly recognized as a key public health and human rights issue. Breastfeeding a baby, having sex with your partner. As we all hear, these most human of human endeavors can land a person living with HIV in jail. But first, let's go back to the late 1980s. America had just introduced the world's first HIV criminal laws based on the misguided belief that they would reduce HIV transmission. Instead, these laws drove people living with HIV underground and away from HIV services. Other countries quickly followed America's lead. In South Africa, amidst apartheid and continued political apathy for HIV, Edward Cameron was a rising human rights lawyer. The battlegrounds of apartheid were the townships, where blacks were lucky to be allowed to live, though still as foreigners in their own land. Justice Edwin Cameron would later become one of South Africa's most high-profile legal minds and advocates. But at the time, he was living with a deep, dark secret. I was diagnosed in December 1986, and it was a very bleak time for everyone living with HIV. And worse than the fact that to my 33-year-old self, this was a certain death sentence, and then the most stigmatized, shameful disease, I think, uh, 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 amongst the most, and perhaps the most, in human history. Edwin fell into the grip of self-shame and stigma. And yet, living with his secret, he continued to help those whose HIV status was known. Mine workers' wives who came and told me in, in, in my, my, my office where I was working as a human rights lawyer that they felt the same shame and stigma as I did. So it was a difficult period and I battled for a long time. Edwin buried his secret for more than a decade until the death of two HIV activists spurred him to speak out. Two things happened. A friend of mine, Simon Tseko and Cordy, a very brave man, he laid the path for us to secure sexual orientation in the South African constitution. And then he died. Later, someone very different from Simon and me, a woman called Gugudlamini in a township in Durban, spoke out on Zulu public radio about the fact that she was living with HIV. She was beaten and stoned and stabbed to death. But what would happen when Edwin revealed his secret? I was terrified, but the reception was overwhelmingly loving, positive, affirming. It was the right moment from all over Africa people still recognize me. One of the paradoxes of my speaking out that no one else in, in a public position in Africa has done that. 
in the 22 years since I did. And I think it's to do with internalized shame. Missing from the conversation was the founder of South African democracy, Nelson Mandela. Mandela was dealing with unspeakably enormous problems of a racial transition from injustice to constitutional democracy. But he was also seduced by the world favor and fame. And while he was spending time with the Spice Girls, he was not giving time to AIDS. To make matters worse, Mandela's successor, President Thabo Mbeki, chose denialism over science. You see, when you ask the question, does HIV cause AIDS? The question is, does a virus cause a syndrome? How does a virus cause a syndrome? It can't. So it was a catastrophe for our young democracy, and it was a catastrophe that President Mbeki couldn't accept. And people got his ear. People who believed rubbish, awful, appalling, incoherent, irrational, unscientific, completely unevidenced theories about AIDS and HIV. Over the years, Mandela became more outspoken on HIV, particularly in 2005, when his son died of AIDS-related causes. So he was absolutely magnificent. When his own son, his eldest son, Makhatu, died, the family did not want to state the cause publicly. It was Mandela who said, we must state the cause publicly. Makhatu, Mandela, my beloved eldest son died of AIDS. And that debt is irrepayable. We can never repay that debt to Mandela for what he did. Edwin has experienced a lot in his lifetime. Internalized fear and shame, a government rejection of science, HIV denialism and violence. But through it all, he has continuously campaigned to end HIV as a crime. It's irrational, it's harmful, it's counterproductive, it's completely unwarranted, it is unscientific, it's unjustified, but it still exists across large parts of Africa and the rest of the world. Thankfully, Edwin is not alone in fighting the injustice of HIV criminalization. Human rights lawyers all over the world take on these cases, often pro bono. My name is Wesley Mafulira. I am a Malawian human rights lawyer. In 2016, Wesley had just attended a human rights workshop when he read a newspaper article about a woman living with HIV who had been jailed for breastfeeding. This woman is now known simply as E.L. to protect her identity. I read in the paper that this lady is a Zomba, was convicted for breastfeeding a baby. She was holding on to her own baby. And then someone came with a, another baby. I think the baby was crying or something. So they said, no, no can you please uh, hold on to my baby? So she dropped off her baby and picked up this baby. Obviously, because she was breastfeeding, the other kid suckled on her breast and suckled the milk. She didn't do it deliberately, actually it was accidental. The village was small, which meant everyone knew EL's business. The rural community, they know that she's on ARVs. So when the mom came, said, okay, what happened? He said, no, you know, uh, your, your baby accidentally suckled on my, on, on, my, on my breast. 
say, ah, okay, but you are on ARVs, you are positive, and, and my baby suckled on your breast. Uh, it means you most likely you, you, you transmitted HIV to my baby. Neither EL's child nor this other woman's baby acquired HIV from breastfeeding, not from a momentary suckling or long-term feeding. But under the law, that didn't matter. That conduct was criminal according to section 192 of our penal code. Our penal code, in other words, the criminal laws. And the way that our provision is, is written, it simply says that if you indict yourself in an activity that is likely to transmit a disease dangerous to life, then you'll be liable to criminal sanction. EL was arrested and brought before the court. Without an attorney to advise her of her rights under the law, EL pled guilty. Sentenced to 17 months imprisonment with hard labour. This is the point in time when Wesley discovered the case and drove 10 hours to meet his new client. The conditions were terrible. I mean, Malawian prisons are not, are not, in, are not the place you want to be. She was there with a, a kid less than two years old, so it was a really bad condition. And... Um, and the other thing is, another sad moment for me was that she, until I explained to her, she didn't actually realize that she was innocent. Because, I mean, the community, they blinded her that she was wrong. So the first stage was to apply for what we call bail pending appeal. We were successful. She was released on bail pending appeal. With EL and her baby safely out of prison on bail, Wesley dove into the evidence. The evidence that the prosecution had given in court was that, you know, breastfeeding was likely to lead to a transmission of HIV. Immediately I then consulted the experts that um, other international organizations said, you know what, they convicted her based on very wrong facts. Scientifically, there is very little chance of transmission of HIV through breast milk. Thankfully, EL's conviction was overturned, but there was concern that the damage had already been done. Hoping to make EL's return home smoother, Wesley sought help to educate her community about HIV. We also managed to get some funding for some psychological support. We engaged the community, the, you know, the chiefs and so on and so forth. And, and now she's okay, she's good. Imprisoned for breastfeeding, sentenced to hard labor while still nursing her own baby. Just one example of the injustice of HIV criminalization. I must say that Wesley's account touches me very profoundly. And she thinks that she is guilty. And this is part of the huge problem that we're dealing with in HIV and AIDS. And I'm someone living with HIV. Let me tell you this, and it's the first time I'm saying it on public record. I didn't always tell my sexual partners long ago, uh, before I was in a committed relationship, that I had HIV. Why not? Because we never did anything that put them at risk. And yet I ended up feeling guilty. So I count myself lucky that uh, I, I wasn't jailed for non-disclosure. Completely irrational, punitive, stigmatized laws that in turn enact stigma. Wesley now sees that HIV criminalization is not just unscientific, but harmful to public health. 
I used to be one of the people who, maybe if you asked me the same question 10 years or so ago, I would have said, you know what? No, someone is HIV positive. No, take them to prison if they do some funny things. I, I, I now understand this from a scientific scientific perspective to say, okay, you know, criminalization just makes things worse. It's so irrational to target people with HIV and to persecute them because what it does, it is counterproductive. It makes them scared to come forward for testing and treatment and diagnosis. And an untreated and undiagnosed person with HIV is a much more of a public health liability than someone who is tested, someone who's, who's, who's counseled, someone who has got the offer of support. We now hear from Robert Suttle, a black man from the American Southern state of Louisiana. Like EL, he too knows the cost of HIV criminalization. I am originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, which is in the south part of the United States. I was born in the low-income community, pretty much reared by my grandparents because my mother had me at a very young age, at the age of 13. Robert was about to graduate from university and exploring the U.S. military as a career option. It was during the enlistment process that he was given news that would change his life. I thought I was fine until I received a letter in the mail that stated that I needed to come back and meet with the, I guess, with the medical director or the doc doctor. And so it, I found myself trying to think of what it could be, even though I didn't know, like I didn't really have any clues. Um, and so when I went, finally, um, I was told that I was HIV positive. In the American South, being gay wasn't easily accepted and HIV was definitely taboo parents would put their kids on blast, as they say, in regards to their status and saying that, you know, it's, you're not going to be living in my house uh, with this, or th the Bible says this, or, you know, you're not supposed to be living this way. And so a lot of young people, young queer and young gay black men and women still live with still live under this type of um, oppression. But then when you couple that with either being HIV positive, it, cr it, creates, um, it creates a greater hardship. It was against this backdrop that Robert met someone on New Year's Eve 2008. So the person that I uh, engaged with was someone that I wasn't as familiar with, but knew of. And it, this person just happened to come out that particular night for, for New Year's and um, and obviously we connected um, and connected more on an intimate level. But prior to that, I felt that I disclosed my status to the individual that I was HIV positive. So that lasted for about three months, but then he decided to end the relationship. It had been a short romance. Robert continued his daily life, working at the local courthouse as a clerk. But soon after, his ex reached out. He contacted me again and um, and asked me about my HIV status. And I did not deny my status even then. And as a result, he became even more upset with me than he was before. He threatened that he was going to press charges against me if, in fact, that he uh, tested and became HIV positive. Robert still doesn't know if his ex ever tested positive. Though Robert says he told his ex about his HIV status, the case would come down to one man's word against another. From there, I, of course, 
um, was contacted by sex crime detectives and uh, they came and checked out my home and took items that they thought that sort of would tie to the fact that I was living with HIV. In other words, looking for evidence. It was then that I knew that this was um, unraveling and, and obviously becoming something very serious. Robert was arrested at work in the courthouse. How could I go from someone that was, you know, a law-abiding citizen to and now and living with HIV and because I'm gay and, and having sex that, how did it get here? Every day I would wake up with pains in my stomach because of what was going on. You can't make decisions, you can't go anywhere. Broken, scared, facing a long prison sentence, Robert agreed to plead guilty. It is common for people to accept a plea bargain. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You just know you want it to be over. And so it puts you in a position where you try to accept the best outcome as possible. Robert served 180 days in jail. He has now been out of prison for nearly two decades, but his conviction still haunts him every day. I have to have the word sex offender on my driver's license. And so, um, so if anyone can imagine having sex offender in big red letters on your driver's license or maybe your passport, can you just imagine how that might have felt? I had nieces and nephews and I wanted to be able to go visit them at school or, or help out in that matter, but because I was subjected to the registry that I, I, I knew that that would be problematic. This experience changed Robert's life. He is now an advocate for ending the criminalization of HIV. It has really opened up my eyes to so much now. Um, and I'm grateful for that because I, I feel like I needed to understand the truth of as a black man, as a black gay man, as a black gay man living with HIV, and now as a, a, a person that's formerly incarcerated, I needed to see how I, how, what position that I had in this, in this life, in this world, in this country. I am more conscious and aware of just injustices that exist, and I'm still learning a lot about how do we get here as a country and as a people, but I'm grateful for it. Robert and EL stories are just two of thousands. In 2020 alone, the HIV Justice Network documented at least 90 unjust HIV criminalization cases across 25 countries. Here's a final thought. Governments introduced HIV criminalization in an effort to counter public panic. But more than 30 years since the first law was passed, there has been no evidence that criminal law reduces HIV transmission. Instead, as we've heard from Edwin, Wesley and Robert, what is proven is that HIV criminalization fuels fear and stigma. The very things Robert now uses his voice to fight against. So you do as much as you can to get as far as you can and just hope that the outcome will be where people living with HIV, again, can live with their dignity and not be labeled and considered criminals simply because they're HIV positive. The message is clear. HIV is not a crime. The law must change to follow the science, and we all have a part to play. Fortunately, change is happening as a result of EL's case and community activism. Malawi's new HIV law, enacted in 2018, no longer includes HIV criminalization provisions. And in America, the state of Illinois has recently made moves to repeal their HIV criminal laws. There are many more to go. Our defence of people living with HIV cannot rest. 
share your story and join the conversation online with the hashtag HIV Unmuted for a chance to win an IAS membership. This is HIV Unmuted. And like our title says, you can't keep us quiet. Subscribe to the IAS podcast, HIV Unmuted, wherever you get your podcasts.